0: be back with you. I want to thank Kenny for sharing last week with you. It's always great to have him, and he did such a great job, and um, it's always good to um, be back, Uh, have a little time away, but also I like the structure of my week when I know I've got a sermon coming. So... um, We have been in a series uh, looking at the life of the great man of God, the Apostle Peter. And over the summer months, we examined episodes of Peter in the Gospels. And then we saw episodes of Peter in the book of Acts. And through all of those, it gave us an opportunity to get to know Peter a little bit better. We saw some of his strengths. We saw some of his weaknesses on display. We learned some of his history with the Lord. And then after the Lord had had ascended and gone back to heaven. And how Peter had really emerged into this leader uh, within the church. And so um, today, we ca- or last two weeks ago, we came to begin looking at the first of two letters that Peter writes. Um, and these are letters that he writes to the churches. Um, and I've got a map for you here that shows you the churches that he's actually writing, addresses this first letter to. Churches like Pontus and Bithynia and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia. These are all provinces of the Roman Empire. Um, and so he's addressing these, uh, this letter to these churches. We learned a couple of weeks ago also that Peter's recipients, the people that he's intending to receive this, are actually Jewish people who have become Christians, so Jewish Christians. We also learned a couple of weeks ago that this letter was written between the years 63 and 64 A.D., um, that is, uh, right before Nero Caesar burned half of Rome to the ground in order to expand his, his, uh, his palace. Um, and so he had to blame somebody for doing that. And so he blamed all the Christians. He blamed all the Jewish people, which led to government-sponsored persecution of the Jews and of the Christians. So just prior to that, in 64 AD, when he set that fire, Peter delivers or sends this letter just like a year, maybe even months before Um, that fire took place, and so it's right up against that. Finally, we saw in the opening lines of the letter that Peter wants to offer some assurances of salvation. He says over in verse 4 that their inheritance, which is in heaven, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Peter wants for uh, these people uh, who are Jewish people who have become Christians to approach eternity with confidence, to know that the Lord Jesus uh, is ready to receive them when they exhaust their last year on this earth and go on to the next. That brings us to our text for today. Our text is going to be 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 14 through verse 19. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. Here we go. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That it like a. Ugh, sorry. <coughs> I've got to get readers. Sorry, verse 19 but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Thank you so much. I hate to have to admit that, but the time has come. All right, so let's let's jump into this. Let's take a look at verse 14. We're going to start there. This is, a, this is kind of the thematic statement of all these verses that we just read. And so hopefully as we examine it that way uh, it'll begin to make more sense to us so look at verse 14 he begins that with as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance so he contrasts two ideas here the first is as obedient children and then he's talking about their former way of life he says your passions of your former ignorance um, when he talks about their obedient, chil- like being obedient children, he's talking about their life now that they have become Christians. Now that they are living um, obediently to God, and then the latter, their former ignorance, speaks of their life before they had become Christians, before they knew about the things that God had expected of them, before they perhaps felt guilty about their sin that was in their lives, before they had sorrow about those sorts of things. Uh, but now that they've become Christians, uh, they have entered into this relationship with Jesus, and they're walking and striving toward obedience. Um, Peter is pointing out about his audience that there is a before and an after when someone comes to faith in Christ. Paul picks up on the same concept over in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 22. Paul says, Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life. He's talking about them before they had become Christians. And then he says in verse 24, put on the new self, uh, created after the likeness of God. So both Peter and Paul have this view of life that involves a before and an after, a life that is uh, before you become a Christian. That's what he calls their former ignorance. And then the life after they have invited Jesus into their life. The life before is lived in ignorance to the things of God. And by ignorance, he's not speaking a slight here of his audience, of his recipients. He's not saying that they are, um, they're inept in their ability to do something. That's not what he's pointing out. He's simply saying, before you became Christians, the things that God expected of you, you just didn't know. Or if you did know them, again, they didn't have a sense of godly sorrow when they did engage in those things. Because the Holy Spirit wasn't working in their life. The Holy Spirit wasn't residing inside of them. And so they didn't have this, uh, <clears throat> this, you know, the Lord prompting them that they were doing something wrong. But now that Jesus has come into their life, things are different. Does that mean that they are perfect? No. And that's why Peter instructs, verse 14 do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You see, he's instructing them to be obedient children. He says, as obedient children, but you know what? I know that you hadn't got it all just right. I know that you haven't ironed all of the wrinkles out of your life just yet. And so because of that, he's instructing them, do not be conformed to your former way of life. Because the old self, the old person that they used to be, that person didn't just dry up when they became a Christian. Um, Mahatma Gandhi said, <clears throat> and he was sincerely thinking about that he was sincerely thinking about becoming a Christian. This was early on in his life. But Mahatma Gandhi said the reason why he didn't become a Christian is because in meeting a bunch of Christians and and rubbing shoulders with a bunch of Christians, he couldn't find one that actually lived like their Savior. He couldn't find anybody that actually resembled and, remod- and modeled the person of Jesus Christ. And so he said, because of that, I felt like Christianity just fell flat for me. Um, <clears throat> well, I've got a word for Gandhi or for anyone else who wants to use that excuse that Christians are hypocrites for not becoming a Christian, and that is that perfection left the earth 2,000 years ago. Friends, as long as we are on this side of heaven, we are going to struggle with sin. Our sinful nature doesn't just go away because we became a Christian. As long as we are on this side of heaven, we will struggle to be obedient children, and we will need people like the Apostle Peter reminding us not to conform to our former way of life. Now, uh, I have mentioned this before in here, but I've been trained in a Wesleyan-Armenian school, uh, which means that John Wesley was a big part of my theological training. And one of the things about Wesley that was distinctive about him uh, is that he would not accept. He, he would not accept that, uh, it is, that sin was inevitable. And so he scoured the Scriptures looking for a solution to the sinful nature problem. And he came to Paul's letter in Galatians where he heard Paul say, Galatians 5 and verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So when he read those words, he didn't hear Paul say uh, a wishful statement, that if you walk and step and step with the Spirit of God, that if you draw closely and intimately in love with the Lord Jesus, that, that maybe you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh, but hopefully that you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He heard him say, you will not. He saw that as a direct contrast or a direct effect of the cause of walking step and step with the Spirit. Um, And so Wesley taught that you can come to a place of such intimacy with God that the sinful nature will no longer be the dominating force in our heart and in our mind, but rather that the Spirit of God will be the dominating, guiding, directing force, that our motives will change, that our personality will change, that the the way that we react to situations in life will change. And all of that change is because we've drawn so close in our walk with God uh, through use of the spiritual disciplines. Um, Personally, I have known people who have had that kind of intimate walk with God, people whose lives ooze the fruits of the Spirit. I mean, when you shook hands with that person, when you looked into their eyes, it was like, you know what, this is a person who is just filled with unconditional love for other people. This is somebody, when I shook hands with them, I just felt like I looked into the eyes of Patience. And I looked into the eyes of of gentleness and self-control, all those fruits of the Spirit. However, such such cases are the exception, not the norm. And what Paul is describing there is not the normal Christian experience. It is out there, and Wesley wanted to make sure that we knew that. That the possibility of not gratifying the desires of the flesh is out there. It is a possibility, but it is rare. Even Wesley recognized it. Peter's audience, they were not the John Wesleys of the world. They were Christian people slugging it out every day, living in the trenches. There was no monastery where they lived. So Peter, in an attempt to encourage his readers to move farther away from the old life, the person they used to be before they came to Jesus, he says to them, one way that we can do that, one way that we can monitor that, one way that we can help move the ball forward in our own walk with the Lord uh, and distance ourselves from our former ignorance is to not be conformed to the world around us. That raises a question, well, what is conformity? Well, conformity in a nutshell is simply to do what everybody else is doing. That's conformity. It's looking around at the people around us. It's looking around at our neighbors. It's looking around at our co-workers. It's looking around at the culture around us and saying, I look like that. I'm doing what everybody else around me is doing. That's conformity. And so Peter tells his audience that if their conduct and their habits and their thought life, and the kind of things that they do for kicks and giggles looks too much like the non-church folks around them, the people who are living in ignorance, the people who are not inclined to feel sorrowful about their sin, that if those Jewish Christians' lives look too much like that, then perhaps that raises that there's a problem. And so this is what Peter is pointing to. Let me read that one more time, that verse, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of of your former ignorance or your former way of life. In other words, don't live the way the world around you is living. All right, I'm going to stop right there. We need to take a time out for just a few moments. We're going to get to the rest of those verses here momentarily. But we need to ask a question. And uh, the question is, it's the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Well, in answering that question, I think that we would all agree on one thing, and that is that the need to be accepted is a powerful force. The need to be accepted by whoever it may be, family, friends, social settings, uh, professional community, whatever it may be, the need to be accepted is a powerful, potent force. The need to be accepted generates all sorts of inner compulsions. The need to be accepted compels us to spend hours shopping and trying on clothes because we want to look our best. But perhaps also we want to make sure that the people around us accept us. Uh, It can lead us to buy too much house or to buy too much car because, well, that's what all of our friends are doing. It need to be accepted can change the kind of language that we use when we're around certain kinds of people. It can change our behavior, the things that we do that are out of the norm for us. We'll go out and we'll do those things, things that we would, would not do in other settings, but we'll do when we're around these kind of people because, again, we want to be accepted. Uh, We'll keep quiet when certain topics come up. We'll even compromise with our own children because we want to be accepted by them. Acceptance, the need to be accepted, is a potent force. Peter says, do not be conformed. In other words, don't do what everybody else is doing. Now, behind Peter's statement is an assumption. His assumption is that we live in a fallen world and that God has a manner of life that he wants for us to live, and he wrote it down here for us to read and know and then to follow. And Peter's assuming that the world in which we live, being a fallen world, being a sinful world, being a world that is filled with sinful desires and sinful motives, uh, that that world that we live in is opposed to how God wants for us to live. And so he's saying, look, you're in this world. I don't want you to live that way. I want you to live this way. Don't be conformed to the culture of the world around you. Now, that's a tall order. I mean, it's easy to say, but tough to execute. And so knowing this, Peter offers up three motivators or three motivations why his audience should live different than the world around them. It begins at verse 15. Let's take a look. Motivation number one, for us to be different than the world around us is because God is holy. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16, since it is written, and Peter's quoting here from Leviticus chapter 11, this is God speaking to Moses. He says, to, God says to Moses, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The word holy indicates purity, but it's more than that. It also indicates God's otherness, that God is not like us. God is pure, at, we, we have faults in our lives, and that taints us, that makes us impure. Um, God is perfect in all that he does, thinks, and acts, and, and, and all that, yeah, I guess that's everything. He thinks and does, um, but we are impure. Um, God is faultless. While the lead singer of Florida Georgia Line croons about his girlfriend, some of y'all remember this song from several years ago, that she is holy, holy, holy. She may be a great person. She may be really wonderful. I'm sure she is. I'm not, not no slight of her, but holy she is not. When we think about what true holiness is, none of us, none of us are holy. God is. He's different than us. So what we have in verses 15 and 19 is the first of three reasons, the first of three motivations why we should not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. The first reason why is because the God that we serve is holy, and naturally, as his children, as any child wants to honor their parent, wants to do something that makes their parents proud of them, happy with what they're doing and how they're living, just the same, we want to do that with our heavenly Father. He's holy; He wants for us to live holy. Number two, the second motivator for us to live non-conformed lives, is because the rewards that God gives us for because of the rewards that God gives us for living that way. Look at verse seventeen. It Says, "And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially, according to how how is God going to judge us according to each one's deeds?" Now, I had a student um, just this past week and some of uh, the the students' responses and their papers was talking about, I want to be good so that I make sure I get to go to heaven. Um, So I had to speak into that response and correct her thinking. Um, She had said basically that her good behavior, she was counting on that to be the the basis for her to get to heaven. Well, our getting into heaven is based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Um, It has nothing to do with how you and I behave here on the earth. Um, how you and I behave here on the earth, if, if that was the, the basis for Jesus letting us into heaven, nobody get into heaven because none of us is pure, right? God is holy. He's in heaven. He's pure. He can't allow impurity into his presence. Peter said, speaking at the council of Jerusalem, where they were discussing this issue of what it takes to get to heaven, he said, Acts chapter 15 and verse 11, but we believe we will be saved. How? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus is what Jesus did for us on the cross. And he's saying that's how we get to heaven. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's the finished work of him on the cross. Plus nothing else. No human effort involved. No human performance involved. No jumping through any religious hoops. No going to confessional. No taking communion. No helping down at the soup kitchen. No recycling. Peter says we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ plus nothing else. In other words, we put our hope and our trust for eternity in what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's as the old hymn writer said, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this should be wonderful news for you. That you don't have to try and earn God's favor to let you into heaven. That you don't have to try and earn your way for him to allow you in there. If, it were, um, if, I was, if you were under the impression that in order to gain God's favor, that you would have to do some good works or be a nice person or maybe give some money to the homeless shelter, friends, none of that is going to move God to allow you into heaven. So you can stop trying. All that is required, this is great news. That's why they call it the good news. This is, this is good stuff. All that is required is that we put our hope and our trust for eternity in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, and we do that by inviting Jesus into our lives, asking his forgiveness of our sins, publicly declaring that through baptism. And if we do that, the Bible says, Peter says, you will be saved. Something for us to think about. Back to verse 17. Peter does acknowledge that even though God does not base our salvation on human performance, nevertheless, God does reward us. Did you know God's going to reward us? It's all through the scriptures. Jesus himself talked about it. Uh, For example, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. How about Matthew chapter 6 and verse 3? But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. How about Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20? Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Anticipating that God's going to reward us. Paul writing to the Corinthians said, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then the Apostle John, writing, picking up on that same theme, writing about the judgment seat of Christ, says, Revelation 20 and verse 12, For I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged. How? By what was written in the books, each according to what they had done. God is planning, friends, to reward us when we get to heaven. And as one of my guys was, one of the guys was talking about this past Wednesday, when we get those crown and they've got all those jewels in them, we're going to be throwing at Jesus' feet anyway. But hey, praise the Lord that God's going to recognize he wants to reward us for all that we've done here with the resources he's given us in this life. So that's motivation number two. The second reason why we would not conform to the world is because God has our Because God, our Heavenly Father, is going to see to it that at the end of this life we are rewarded in heaven by what we did with the talents and the resources that He gave us. Did we live for God while we were here on this earth? What did we do with what God gave us? Did we not conform to what the world is wanting us to do? And the degree to which we do those things will determine our eternal reward in heaven. We are saved by grace, but we are rewarded based on our works. And that is very much a biblical concept taught by Jesus himself. Motivation number three, the last reason Peter gives why we should not be conformed to this world, number three, is because when we consider the price that was paid, uh, that should motivate us to want to live a holy life. Uh, Verse 18 says, knowing that you are ransomed. Now the word ransom means literally to buy something back. It was something that Somebody else now has something somebody else now possesses and perhaps are planning to do some sort of harm to that. And so um, we, we pay the price and we're able to gain that back for ourselves to rescue it, basically. He says, knowing this, that you're ransomed, um, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with something much more precious, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Peter says, remember Jesus' death on the cross. Remember the sacrifice that he made. Remember the beatings. Remember his humiliation. When you're in the midst of your own experience of those things, remember his suffering. Remember his innocence. This man who had never done anything wrong in his whole life, he was blameless. Jesus was faultless. This was was Pilate's declaration about him. He interviewed the man. He said, I find no fault in this guy. Why is he even here? There's no reason for him to be even on trial. This is wrong. He's innocent and yet he was crucified anyway. Peter says we were ransomed, we were bought back with the precious, expensive blood of Jesus Christ. And friends, that should motivate each and every one of us. It's part of the reason why we have communion week after week, as to remind us of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf is to fill our hearts with an appreciation and a love for him because of what he was willing to do for us. That's motivation number three, the precious blood of Jesus that was spilt to buy us or ransom us back. All right, let's summarize. Verse uh, 14, Peter instructed us in this passage not to conform to what the non-believing world is doing, and he gives us three motivations why we should not conform. Motivation number one is because God our Father in heaven is holy, and therefore because he's our Father, we want to honor him, we should live holy lives as well. Number two, we should not conform because God's plan to reward us in heaven is based on what we did with the life that God gave us here on this earth. Did we squander it? Did we squander the talents that God gave us? Or did we use them to glorify God? Did we use them to build up his kingdom? Um, and so God will reward us accordingly. Verse or Number three uh, is third motivation. is because when we consider the price that Jesus paid on the cross, that should well up inside of us a desire to do what, on, what is honorable in God's eyes not to live the way the world lives. So those are the, that's kind of a, his thematic statement there in verse 14, and then his three motivations that, he, that follow. I want to just close out my time with uh, a little uh, diagram. This is something I had presented to you a couple weeks ago. Actually turned out what one of our Sunday school classes was studying this morning. Um, and let me just explain what you're seeing here. So you've got four sources of truth, um, four different ways that we uh, learn about truth in our world. Uh, Scripture is one of those, right? So we read God's Word, and this is God's truth in written form, and we can learn and discover what truth is when we sit with God's Word. Another source of truth is reason. This would be science. This would be logic. This would be philosophy. Uh, We can sit down with the reason, the good mind that God gave us, and we can discern things, and we can discover what truth is through that source. A third third source of truth is tradition. This is what our parents have taught us. This is what our church has taught us. This is what the community in which we were raised has taught us. And so, again, we can draw uh, what's right from what's wrong. We can draw um, understandings of truth from our traditions. And then, finally, uh, is experience. Uh, We all have experiences in life, and those those experiences shape us. Um, And they help form us, and they form our our self-concept and our sense of purpose and and what we end up doing in life. Um, Wesley said amongst these, John Wesley, theologian from the 1600s, early 1700s, he talked about this and said, you know what? I'm looking at these four sources of truth, and out of these, Scripture is primary. And that's what the diagram represents. It shows Scripture as the primary truth source amongst other sources of truth. So in other words, when my experience of life maybe telling me that i think this is okay i think i'm on the right track here when that experience disagrees with scripture i default to scripture so scripture's primary when my tradition perhaps that i've been raised in a whole life and i thought that i knew what was right from what was wrong and then i all of a sudden encounter god's word and i see that i've been taught wrong I've assumed wrong, then I default to what God's word says. Same thing with reason. Um, this is our commitment. and you know, we stand up week in and week out, right? And I, I know I, I, I've been talking a lot about this lately. I feel like I've been talking a lot about this lately. Um, but, you know, we look at the world around us. We look at how culture is changing. And I just feel like we're a generation away. From losing that model. We always are. The church is always one generation away, but it feels ever present. Um, this is our commitment. Peter says, Don't be conformed. You know, the world's out here, it has its thoughts, it has its prescriptions for how we ought to live, and what it thinks, and its value systems. Stick with Scripture. Um, I know it's tough. I mean, when you go into work and you hear the things you have to hear and some things that you feel like you have to put up with, some things you don't, but many things that we feel like we have to put up with and we interact with, it's difficult. It's difficult to go against the flow. I mean, the easiest path for any boat is downstream, right? But when you turn that bow of that ship and you're heading against the flow, Peter's words do not be conformed. That's a noble thought. Not so easily done. And so we need to keep these motivations in front of us. We need to keep, remind ourselves again of this is where truth comes from. I can turn the bow of my ship. I can go with the flow. Do what everybody else is doing. Set my Bible to the side. Friends, it will end in Disaster every time ask anybody down through human history how that went for them and how it went for the generations that would follow them so this morning to close out i just want to pray for you i just felt compelled in my heart that given the world that we're living in given the world that we're raising our children in that we just need to be ever vigilant and strong to stand firm for what god thinks and for his truth. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we come here week in and week out to be instructed, to be encouraged. Um, Lord, we also need to be reminded weekly that, uh, that scripture is your truth in written form. And that God, when our world says, um, I don't know about that. Lord, that we just stand firm. Help us, God, to be able to stand firm in a loving way. Help us to be able to stand firm in ways that uh, are uncompromising. Lord, we give you situations at work. We give you situations in our own home, our own family. God, wherever we may be feeling the draw to turn the bow of our ship and go with the flow. May we hear Peter's words. As obedient children, do not be conformed. Don't do what everybody else is doing. Lord, may that be said of us years from now. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.